always great to see you. Thanks for stopping by. Great to see you. So Mo, let me start with this. Uh, I was watching an interview with Stan Miller recently and sure. over his 45 year history, he says this year, 2023, is the hardest one for him to make a call macro wise. How do you feel about where markets are today yeah. and what's your kind of outlook? Yeah, well, so coming into the year, I think the expectation was a recession, right? So whether you thought it was a mild recession or a more severe recession, most people were pretty bearish. You can see that, actually, if you look at flows, for example, in money market funds or even bank deposits, which have been incredibly elevated. So well, I actually read recently that the short positioning of hedge funds had gone back to its highest peak since during pandemic exactly. times, but we're back up to bearish times. So you think about professional investors, retail investors, all very pessimistic. Mm. Now, what we've seen for markets is kind of exactly the opposite. We've seen growth back in favor and I'll talk a little bit about that because I think under the surface, there's a lot going on. So it's yeah. not the headline numbers, but also what's going on under the surface. But equities have actually had a pretty good year. Fixed income has had a good year. So if you remember 2022, down year, double digit down year, and really tough for a 60-40 portfolio, mm -hmm. we're seeing the exact opposite this year. Now, if you get a little bit deeper, though, what I think is interesting, it's a very narrow market. Mm -hmm. So you look at the top names in the indices, which are heavily dominated by the tech sector, you've seen most of the performance there. So if you look at the top 10 names, even the top five names, they've driven most of the return. And the bottom 95% of stocks mm -hmm. have really had flat to negative year. Even mm -hmm. the, the Russell 2000, which is a reflection of smaller capitalization stocks, has had a challenging year. And the bond market mm -hmm. is also telling us something a little bit different than the equity market. We still have a yeah. deeply inverted yield curve, which has you know, historically been a sign of a impeding recession. So challenging market, I don't disagree with that comment. I think it is a very challenging market. Although for an asset allocator, there are opportunities. And the 60-40 portfolio, in my opinion, is having a little bit of a renaissance, if you may, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's coming back from a year where people basically were writing it off as a balanced portfolio solution, right? Yeah. So diversification, some of those concept that historically maybe were harder for us to allocate to, like fixed income. Mm. Remember, fixed income had very little expected return or yield for a very long period of time. Mm. Now those things are back in favor and I actually think it's a great opportunity for investors. People are so quick to write things off and the market can change you know, relatively quickly. Everyone was dismissing the 60-40 portfolio, we're back again. I mean, me included, I was like, right, now's the time for value to outperform. Some of these growth stocks came back. So it's funny how the market can, can turn on its head. And it sort of looks where the psychology is and tries to sort of feel like it's catching us out. Yes. One of the people early in my career uh, said the market is the greatest humiliator. Yeah. It tries to humiliate the most people. As mm -hmm. it, you know, it's like it's always yeah. trying to catch you on the wrong side yeah. of whatever the trend is. Which I think, again, argues for <laughs> a very balanced, diversified uh, approach to asset allocation. Thinking about not necessarily what's happening in the short horizon, a day, a week, a month, but looking at kind of the long-term trends and also aligning those with your long-term goals. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just mean individuals, right? I mean, a pension fund, what is your funding ratio? What is your liability stream? A foundation, a perpetual organization that has to you know, uh, be a going concern and yeah. fund some <laughs> sort of activity over a long period of time. How should you al allocate your assets today to set you up for success tomorrow? Mm. You mentioned, uh, actually, if you take out some of the biggest names, and for example, the S&P 500 equities uh, look a lot less uh, impressive this year. So it begs the question, some of those tech names, the NVIDIAs, the, mm. the Microsofts, the Teslas, are we, given their outperformance relative to the other equities, could we be in a tech bubble? Are we in a tech bubble now? 
So, look, I, I think it's different, right? The tech bubble, if you look at the characteristics of those companies at the time, so we're talking about the, the tech crash, mm-hmm. there was like very little profitability associated with tech. Mm. That is a very different tech than we see today. Mm. So those top five names that we're just talking about are extremely profitable. Mm. They have large, large cash positions, lots of internally generated cash flows. They are not relying on external debt. These are not startups, right? Yeah. These are yeah. very well established, yeah. very defensive companies with <laughs> mm-hmm. large, large cash flows. Just look at Apple, for example, and their cash balance sheet. I mean, it's just the market capitalization of their cash is bigger than most companies in the S&P 500, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's kind of the way I would think about it. Although mm-hmm. you have to understand, you know, everything, in my opinion, goes back to two things. One is future cash flows. Mm-hmm. What are the expectations around future cash flows? and the discount rate. Mm. Those two things drive all asset prices, in my opinion. So with tech stocks, what you have to really think about is their ability to deliver on expectations in the future Mm. because they're heavily reliant, their prices are heavily reliant on future cash flows. Whereas with value companies, they tend to generate more cash flows today, but there's uncertainty about their future. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's one of those dynamics. I actually think growth right now and potentially for the rest of the year is going to be more favorable and better performing than value, just given where we are in the business cycle. Got it. There's cyclicality in some of these factors. Definitely growth tends to mm. outperform in periods of uncertainty. And when economic growth is actually low, investors chase growth within their asset allocation. Mm. When economic growth is high, you tend to get more levered to that business cycle, more levered to that growth, <laughs> and you go down in the market cap and you buy value <laughs> companies. Um, Mo, you just mentioned asset prices highly affected by free cash flow and discount rates, two big factors. Can I maybe throw in a third? How do you feel just in terms of the Fed's balance sheet? Mm. So I'm talking about liquidity. Going back 10 years, huge amount of fiscal stimulus has gone into this market. We just had the debt ceiling raised again. Is there an argument that, you know, if we stay in this period of easing, then until we start tightening again or until, you know, we start getting more fiscally responsible, trying to reduce the fiscal gap, um, asset prices can also just be highly influenced by just pure money coming into the system. Sure. Yeah. So money supply. I mean, I think that's the way to think about it. And you know, just looking at the COVID, COVID period and the post-COVID period, mm. you see this big expansion in the money supply and then you know a tightening of financial conditions. So you know, longer term, that's definitely something to consider. You could argue that because we've had monetary and fiscal policy that has been pretty accommodative, mm. monetary first and then fiscal due to COVID, you know, that's been you know, somewhat deceiving or, or muted volatility around uh, certain asset prices. That definitely is something to consider. You know, I think, again, over the long run, though, you know, debt ceiling, mm-hmm. the politics of it, those tend not to actually have a lot of impact. I mean, if you look mm. at you know, 20-year periods, 30-year periods, 50-year periods, these things that we worry about kind of in the short term, somehow don't make it into like the return streams and the time yeah. series that we look at, Yeah, right? It, it, it becomes yeah. kind of a huge topic today, but it, it kind of washes out over long periods of time. Just like inflation, like inflation, think about how much we talked about inflation. Mm-hmm. Is it transitory? Is it not transitory? What is the definition of transitory, by the way? Right. Right. I mean, I could argue it's still transitory if we get back down yeah. to reasonable levels, somewhere between two and 3%, then it wasn't a structural high inflation period. It was a temporary high inflation period. And you know, I'm, I'm of the belief that while there are some inflationary forces, obviously with 
everything that happened around money supply and mm-hmm. you know the fiscal stimulus and obviously monetary policy over a much longer period of time. Those are inflationary things, mm-hmm. but there's also deflationary things. Mm-hmm. AI. Yeah. Some of what we're seeing in technology. Yeah. Productivity is going to go up. The cost of things is going to go down because of that. Mm. So it's really hard to gauge. Are we going to be in a structural kind of high inflation period or actually is this going to come back down? Are we going to start worrying about not having enough inflation? Right. And no one talks happen. about that today. And it could be. It could happen very quickly. It could. Let's go back to what you said earlier about people expecting recession coming into this year. You know, the rate height cycle we've had over the past 12 months, I'm not a a brilliant historian in terms of college. I don't know if it's been that fast for a very long time. Why do you think that didn't have as much of an effect in terms of, because most people would have thought it would have sent us into a recession, but it sort mm. of hasn't. And the labor market is still pretty strong. A lot of the economic data is still pretty strong. People are still mm. spending. Why do you think it didn't have as much of a, an effect on the, on the economy? I mean, I think you hit on a couple of things already. So labor market and the consumer are pretty healthy. Mm. Um, so Generally, those are things that would show some signs of distress or some signs of weakness if we were going to go into a recession. The other thing is if you look at credit spreads, which tend to lead equity markets, which tend to lead recessions, they've been fairly tight. Actually, they've been kind of close to their historical averages. Yeah. Maybe some of the excesses that have built up or had built up in the system prior recessions aren't there yet, mm-hmm. or there's you know a pocket or two of it that hasn't necessarily materialized. Remember, all of the tightening that we're talking about all 500 basis points of tightening has happened over the course of a very short period of time, a yeah. year. Yeah. Right? The slope of that line, so rate hikes time has never, actually, you've never seen anything like that. Oh, really? And it's on a lag, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, recession not this year doesn't mean recession never. So we need it's to a, wait for it to wash through the it's system. It's a when, a not an if, right? Okay. So, you know, okay. I think, you know, I think there will obviously be a uh, slowdown. I don't know how deep we're talking, but obviously this tightening cycle will eventually lead to the beginning of a new cycle. It, it always does, right? So, We were talking a little bit beforehand about media and the role of media in, sure. in financial markets. I watch financial news morning shows. You're, you're on quite a few of them. Do you think we all pay too much attention with regards to the Fed as to whether they hike 25 or 50? Or I mean, obviously, we expected a rate tightening, but where we are now, so much debate is whether the Fed's going to cut or whether they're going to raise or what they're going to do. Yeah. Do you think there's too much focus on that? I mean, at this stage, it's probably not as important, right? I think, you know, if if you were really good at forecasting and you kind of saw what happened over the last year, that would probably be pretty important, right? Because yeah. change in discount rate of that magnitude. And by the way, I'm not sure anyone was expecting that speed and that level. Mm-hmm. But now we're kind of in a period where I would say we're getting close to done, right? So maybe you have another 25 basis point hike mm-hmm. in July, like the market is expecting, but I'm not sure there's that much more okay. to go. And so we're getting if, into the realm now. Yeah. So now focusing on it now, I think, is less less impactful or less material than maybe mm-hmm. we have been focused on it over the last couple of years. And then there was a period there where there was no activity. So I'm not sure anyone was focused on it, right? Yeah, I mean, so that's true. Uh, you know, then we was, talked about yeah. it for five years or six years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's really important again. It obviously drives everything, right? I mean, yeah. if you think about policy, and I, I started my career in fixed income, so maybe I'm a little oh, yeah. bit biased, but it's kind of the starting point of everything. Like if you understand what's happening with mm-hmm. that discount rate, what's happening with policy, you can start to understand how other things will behave, right? Like equities, you know, what happens in private credit, what happens yeah. to crypto, like all of these asset classes that we're watching, you know, at the end of the day, there is kind of a foundational mm-hmm. policy related question 
that drives all of those asset prices. Well, let's talk about what it does to the banking system. Um, we've obviously seen a couple of fallouts already as uh, deposits were moving out of these banks and they, uh, they struggled to, to say solvent um, and then got saved. Do you think there's another shoe to drop? In the regional banking world, there's talk of like, you know, commercial real estate exposure. A lot of it sure. sits on the balance sure. sheets of these uh, regional banks. Is that something we need to keep an eye on or you think it's manageable? We definitely keep an eye on, right? I do think that the tightening that we've seen over a short period of time is kind of unprecedented, right? Mm. So things will break. We saw some things break. Now, mm. is that under control? I would argue that is under control. Mm. Um, so two reasons. One, I think the industry was stepping in to obviously help, but also the backstop that the mm -hmm. government provided. You know, I do think that has some implications longer term, like what happens to the regional model Yeah. as more of these regional banks disappear, right? I mean, they're, they're kind of the bigger getting bigger and the banking system is actually moving to more of a... Um, is that a good thing? Do we have too many banks in America? I mean, I... I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think competition is always a good thing. I sure. think the regional banks did serve a purpose. Um, you know, I think what will happen is some of what they historically have done is going to go to other places. Like, mm. for example, you know, in the private credit space, direct lending, right? I mean, a lot of that was being done by banks, mm. right? And now it's moving off into more like the asset management or private market mm. uh, specialist boutique firms. So, I mean, I think the market works it out, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when... When there's a gap, someone is going to step in to fill that gap. Yeah. But it is going to be interesting to see how that changes uh, behavior. I mean, think about, like, do you have a regional bank account? I do not. You no. have a bank account Chase. probably with one of the large banks, right? Yeah. So that's a change in behavior that yeah. didn't always, that was not always the case. Yeah. You know, people banked at their local community bank. Yeah. I just wonder if these banks, you know, sometimes history repeats itself. I just looked over in the UK, there's a a building society I'd never heard of before called Skipton Building Society. They're now doing 100% mortgage. So mm. zero deposit down. I read in the US that Rocket Mortgage were doing something similar, very small deposits down. Just has all the hallmarks of like um, lending, getting out of control again, which is strange given this mm. environment. But do you think we can ever see a kind of banking crisis, not similar to 2008, but some, you know, there's just so much credit out there that if it's lent in, a, in the wrong way, it could... Generally speaking, where we see a crisis doesn't repeat itself, mm. right? So if you've seen it in one area, it's you probably not going to come back or pop up because there's been controls <clears throat> put in place and regulation to address that issue. So mm. regulatory capital, you know, the monitoring that the government now does. You know, I, I, I think if I, if I kind of looked at the banking system today, I would argue it's way healthier than it's been historically, mm -hmm. right? There's way more uh, conservatism in the system than there was maybe mm -hmm. during the last financial crisis. And to my point, I, I don't think the crisis point repeats itself. It finds another place where we're right. not paying attention. Yeah. You know, it's usually yeah. where people are paying attention that it doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. So right now True. everyone says commercial real estate. I'm wondering if maybe it's, if it's that obvious, it's probably not there. True. But. True. So we talked a bit about Equities, mm -hmm. touched on a bit of credit. How about other areas of, of, of the markets? Um, a commodities an area you think are an, an exciting place to invest right now? So commodities are always interesting because you can't really, we can't think about it in a traditional asset allocation. Most long-term asset allocators start with capital market assumptions, which tend to think about something's yield or expected return and volatility. Because there's no yield or dividend on a lot of these, like mm -hmm. gold doesn't have sure. a, it's not you paying you anything. Yeah, so you can't really say, here's the perfect weight or here's the ideal weight yeah. in asset allocation for the long term. Yeah. So people tend to think about commodities and other metals like agriculture, things like that, as more of a tactical 
asset allocation decision. And there are times where we do take some views on things like oil, for example. And, sure. you know, it's it's part of our asset allocation framework when we think about horizons between six months and three years rather than 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's another area that we both have vested interests is um, New York real estate. Yes. <laughs> When's that going to come down? <laughs> Uh, when is it going to come down? I have no idea. I mean, rents are, are still elevated. Mi- I mean, we, we're talking about yeah. um, rents have been elevated, right? And, yeah. and bigger cities, especially New York, you know, have come back from a from the housing markets have all kind of stabilized or actually been coming back um, pretty aggressively post COVID. That's not mm-hmm. true everywhere, but New York definitely. I don't know. I think overall, though, long term, New York tends to have a fairly stable yeah. uh, real estate market. You don't see like San Francisco level double digit returns on an annual basis. And then, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. volatility in that. It tends to be much more mm-hmm. uh, diversified. But yeah, I hope so. I mean, look, I, I'm kind of <laughs> the same place you are, right? Yeah, so we're, yeah. hoping, we're hoping it stays. Next year, Mo. Next year, we'll get him. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about the dollar. Sure. Um, again, there's been a lot of uh, stimulus. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, if the dollar hadn't been the uh, the world's reserve currency, perhaps it would have been a lot weaker. Um, I know Stan actually in the same interview was saying that one of his bigger bets was that the dollar was going to go down. How do you feel about the dollar? It's been fairly resilient so far. I think people that have bet against the dollar have lost a lot of money. If you're doing that, you're probably doing that um, more in, in your tactical asset allocation mm-hmm. uh, framework. Um, but the dollar is extremely resilient. I think it's the flight to quality currency and it will continue to be. I don't see that changing. Honestly, I don't see that changing anytime Mm -hmm. soon. It's a combination of things. I mean, I think it's, Mm. um, you know, if you think about the U.S., the U.S. has several strategic advantages, you know, the the legal system, geographical. Great place for business. Great place for business. Mm. So capital flows. Mm. uh, It's tough to argue that there's a better place to kind of invest your money safely over time, especially when things get challenging. So Mm -hmm. we see this time and time again when there's a crisis, when there's an issue, where there's major volatility war, people generally tend to think Mm. of the US and the US dollar as the place to be. And I don't think that's changing. A question I've asked others as well uh, on AI, both professionally and personally. Sure. Are you excited about AI? Are you nervous about AI? Where do you sit? So is it weird that I haven't gone and asked ChatGPT a question yet? Because I feel like everyone has done that, right? Not once? Not once. Really? Yeah, so I think I got to do that. Oh, you got to get Microsoft Bing, then you're straight in there. Right. So I'm like the old school guy. I'm still like Googling okay. it. People are <laughs> chat GPTing it now. Um, no, I, so, all kidding aside, I think it's going to be a very important factor across a number of different sectors. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, it could be kind of the next revolution in mm-hmm. that kind of tech sector. Um, you know, it's going to make things more productive, in my opinion. And I think I've said this before, uh, we always worry about tech replacing people, Mm -hmm. but historically it's just enabled or enhanced what we do, right? Like think about the calculator. Were there a bunch of math teachers that were like protesting on the streets that (laughs) the calculator was going to put them out of a job? No. I mean, the calculator became a tool Mm -hmm. in which, you know, in the same way people, people are going to need to teach us how to use AI. Right. Right. Yeah. But but there will be, I mean, there will be just to kind of finish that thought, there will be winners and losers, Mm -hmm. just like everything else. I mean, there will be some areas that, you know, could potentially be impacted by that more than others, Mm. right? You know, I think we're we're kind of using it at the moment to think about uh, how to kind of streamline certain operations, how to get more efficient. You mean at Invesco now? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So from a sector perspective or from a financial services perspective, 
uh, one of the things that it's very helpful with is, you know, taking in a lot of information quickly and, you know, coming to some conclusions quickly, whereas mm. before that could take a lot of time. So think about earnings calls, earnings transcripts. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are using it to get a better sense of how companies are run. So, you know, using Glassdoor HR mm -hmm. data to better understand the health of a company. Mm -hmm. These are really powerful tools, right? And before you might be able to get to the same conclusion, it might have just taken you a lot longer. Yeah. Final question, Mo. Sure. Um, you used to be a credit guy, you were saying, and I used to be an equity guy. So I'm going to sure. try and get you to give me some advice. But if someone's, you know, where rates are, they're looking much more attractive now. Where on the yield curve do you think is like most exciting to sure. be looking for investment? Or is there like some, are you looking for high yield? Is that exciting? Corporates? Where do you even start? Sure. Yeah, I'm really happy you asked this question oh, because good. it's actually a topic with clients right now. Mm. Um, because short rates are so attractive, so essentially you can get four and a half, five percent, basically risk-free. But you have to define what you mean by risk, right? So when I think about risk, I also think about what's my real like what is the real rate of return? Okay. So when we when we see the nominal return. You're like, well, after inflation, what is it? What is it after inflation? And then you also have to think about reinvestment risk. So when you're on the shorter end of the curve, not only are you, you know, potentially giving up some yield, although right now that's not the case because the yield curve is inverted, but you also have to think about reinvestment. Mm. So when you do get your proceeds, at what rate at that time could you redeploy those assets? Mm. Given what I said earlier about rates, if you believe that the Fed is near done and rates are going to be you know, somewhere around where they are now or going down, then you do have reinvestment risk. When you yeah. go back to the market to redeploy, you're going to probably redeploy at a lower yield. Yeah. So thinking about that trade-off, mm -hmm. right? So thinking about, well, if I extend duration, go out on the curve a little bit and lock it in yeah. versus stay short and have that reinvestment risk, I think is a real topic right now with clients. And then, and then you also have to think, what's the intention of those assets over the long term, right? Mm. Most people should not be sitting on a significant amount of cash if they have long-term liabilities or long-term goals, mm -hmm. right? Because we understand the power that inflation or, you know, uh, real return considerations have on a portfolio. We understand that, you know, there's a risk premium attached to something. So, you know, taking additional risk comes with additional return. That's that's really the framework you should use. So yeah. you have to kind of go back to that very simple mm -hmm. framework and say, what am, I, what am I trying to do? What's the timing of the cash flow that I'm looking for? And most often, it's not cash, right? You know, that's yeah. not the answer. It's usually uh, in riskier parts of the market that earn that premium. Got it. So if I'm going to rent in Manhattan for the next two years, do two year treasuries, lock in a good rate, and then... Well, look, if you've, got a if you've got a mortgage a couple of years ago... You probably had a mortgage somewhere between two and a half to three percent. It was two point eight. Right. So you're actually earning a spread over your mortgage. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's no surprise that supply, like if you think about supply in the market, supply yeah, of real right. estate has been very tight because that trade-off is actually no one's paying off their mortgage at two and a half percent. Right. Yeah. And especially when short you know, short rates are at four and a half percent. Yeah. Mo, it's always so great to chat with you. Thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thank you. I appreciate it.